welcome you all to the Department of Defense's Bloggers Roundtable for Thursday, December 16th, 2010. My name is Petty Officer William Selby with the Office of the Secretary of Defense Public Affairs, and I will be moderating our call today. A note to our bloggers on the line, please remember to clearly state your name and blog or organization in advance of your question. Respect our guest time, keeping questions succinct and to the point. And if you're not asking a question, please place your phone on mute. Today our guest is Colonel John Ferrari, Deputy Commander for Programs NATO Training Mission Afghanistan, Combined Security Transi Transition Command Afghanistan. Colonel Ferrari will be discussing coalition-procured equipment given to the Afghan National Security Force to help them in their fight against insurgents in Afghanistan. And, uh, sir, with that, if you are ready for your opening statement, you can go ahead. All right, first, thanks for uh, everybody who's uh, signed on today to, uh, to talk to us. We appreciate your interest in uh, what we're doing here in the NATO training mission. Uh, first, a little bit about our mission. Our mission is to help the government of Afghanistan generate and sustain the Afghan army and police all the way from the ministerial systems, essentially their, their version of the Pentagon, through their operational commands down to the individual units. We have a current goal right now, an objective, to grow to 305,000 Afghan army and police, broken out into 171K army, 134,000 police by October 2011, so in about uh, nine months from now, nine or ten months from now. Currently, we have about 250,000 Army and police, with that broken out at about 115,000 for the police and 146,000 for the Afghan Army. Uh, we procure all of their equipment. We sustain them. We uh, pay for a lot of their training, and uh, the, the Congress of the United States has given us this year in uh, 2010 uh, $9.2 billion in the Afghan Security Force Fund, and the President has requested in the 2011 appropriation another $11.6 billion, and we're currently waiting for that to come through the congressional appropriations process. We spend about a third of those dollars on equipment for the Afghan security forces. Equipment such as up-armored Humvees, Ford Rangers, which is uh, their number one uh, vehicle for mobility. We buy NATO-type weapons for the Afghan army, and we're equipping the Afghan police mostly with former Soviet Warsaw Pact uh, weapons. We buy aircraft such as the C-27 Alpha, which is a, uh, a turboprop cargo plane, and the MI-17, uh, which we'll be buying over time 56 of them. Currently, what we're in uh, overall between uh, what we've bought the Afghan Army and police and what we will buy them over the next year to get to that 305,000 force. We expect that all of that equipment will cost about $10 billion total uh, by the time we're done procuring it. And when we're done procuring it at that level, we think we will have bought about 80,000 vehicles, 175,000 radios and technical equipment, about 400,000 weapons, and 146 different aircraft. Uh, so with that, uh, I'll be happy to take uh, anybody's questions. 
Thank you very much, sir. And uh, somebody else joined us. Hi, yes, this is Sharon Weinberger with AOL News. Okay, Sharon. And um, Spencer, you were first on line. You can go with your question. Hey, thanks very much, Colonel Ferrari. It's Spencer Ackerman uh, with Wired's Danger Room. Um, after fiscal 2011 uh, is done with the next round of appropriations, um, will NTMA continue to procure any more of these weapons uh, and equipment, or is this buy the last buy? Um, in other words, by the time we get through uh, the MI-17, the C-27, the Up Armor Humvees, the Ford Rangers, radios, all that, um, after the, the next 100, um, sorry, $11.6 billion is spent, is that it, or will you request more? Will that continue for further years? Thank you. Right. So there are two scenarios that we have. And uh, so I said that uh, that money buys us 305,000 forces by October 2012. If the President of the United States and the international community in coordination with the government of Afghanistan decide to grow to something larger than 305,000, then yes, there will be another large additional procurement in 2012. If they decide that 305,000 is enough and we don't grow beyond that, then what we will be buying in 2012 essentially is the sustainment and recapitalization set for equipment that is either worn out because they've had it for a few years, uh, destroyed in battle, or destroyed uh, through accidents. Uh, so the decision for that will be made uh, by the president and the international community sometime in the uh, January-February time frame, we believe. Over. A uh, quick follow-up on that. What is the size of that sustainment recapitalization force? What, what, how much of that will, you know, what are your cost estimates on it, and how long will it continue? Well, the, the cost estimates for that, for uh, I don't have the breakout for equipment, but overall we think it will cost about $6 billion per year to sustain an army and police of 305000 The majority of that money is for sustainment, things like fuel, repair parts, salaries, uniforms, uh, individual soldier equipment. There'll be a, a you know a, a, a piece of that, perhaps three or four or five hundred million per year for capital equipment. Uh, but as we get closer to that and we determine where out rates, we'll be able to adjust that. Over. Thank you, sir. And uh, on to Dale. Good morning, sir. This is Dale Kissinger from MilitaryAvenue.com. Um, thank you for taking your time late at night to talk to us. Uh, my question concerns the purchase of, of Soviet equipment. Um, I live in Michigan, and uh, the, the area around here is pretty pretty bad economically, and uh, there's a lot of American questions about why we're buying Soviet equipment to, to equip them with when we have a lot of American equipment that could do the same. Yeah, that's a, a great question, and I thank you for asking that. One of the top challenges we have here in Afghanistan is that the Afghan population has been traumatized by 30 years of war, first by the Soviets and then by the Taliban. And one of the casualties of that war has been was the destruction of the education system for most of those 30 years. And so what we have now is a population that is mostly illiterate. And estimates range, but, but we think right now we're recruiting that only 15% of the soldiers and policemen that we recruit are literate. And when I say literate, that means 
you know, they can function at maybe a first or third grade level. So most of the soldiers and police, when they come in, don't understand what a number is. So if you're looking at a serial number on a weapon, they, they don't understand what the numbers are, and they have an inability to sign their name. So what the implications of that are that we have to keep them with something that they know, and then once we get something into the supply system and we've trained them, we've really got a pure fleet, whatever it is, a radio, a weapon, or something like that. So if we talk weapons, on the Army side, we've been able to convert them from former Wausau Pact weapons, for the most part, to NATO weapons. But on the police, because they have less of a functioning chain of command because they're dispersed throughout the community and not organized in battalions, uh, we've decided to keep them with a weapon that they know and understand. On the MI-17, which is what a lot of people talk to, the decision was made several years ago to stay with the MI-17. The Soviets designed the MI-17 for Afghanistan. And so it's the only aircraft in the world that was designed specifically for the terrain and for the, uh, the altitude and the weather here. And so when they started up the air program, there were the Afghan pilots knew how to fly and maintain the MI-17. Now, over time, you are correct. We are trying to move away from those Soviet-type weapons to Western aircraft or Western vehicles. So on, on the vehicle front, you know, we're, we're buying international trucks uh, as their medium truck. We're buying up-armored Humvees. Uh, we're buying Ford Rangers. And on the aircraft, the C-27s a Western aircraft. We're going out with some light lift. So a lot of the things, the basic things that we started with were Soviet-type weapons because that was what was here and it was easy to start with. But over time, as we bring up their literacy rates, as we're here longer, as their training increases, we have a concerted effort to introduce Western, Western uh, equipment. So the night vision goggles that we're buying for them are all U.S night vision goggles. We don't go and buy Soviet when we introduce new equipment. Same thing with our radios. Uh, the radios are Western radios, not Soviet. Over. Okay, thank you very much. That was great. And Sharon? Yes, I wanted to ask about aircraft procurement, not just the MI-17s, but also the light attack aircraft. You know, the MI-17s have been caught up in protests and then the question of whether the Navy or Army will handle procurement. Um, are you concerned that sets your schedule back for modernization? And then sort of connected to that, can you update us where actually we are in the selection of a light, of a light attack aircraft for Afghanistan? I can. So... The Government Accountability Office ruled a few weeks ago that the Department of Defense for Procurement uh, of the MI-17, that, that, that well, it was okay that we were following procurement rules. And so the Navy and the Army, once that positive ruling was reached, uh, the Department of Defense is now determining the best path forward uh, to work with the Russians in order to determine how to procure those aircraft. So 
I am not involved in that acquisition decision that's being done by, by uh, the Navy, as you said. And so we hope that in a few weeks the Department of Defense will, will find a way forward to do that. And we're confident that the acquisition professionals within the Pentagon will figure out a way to make up the time lost during the protest in order to get the aircraft here uh, when we need them. As far as the white attack aircraft, the request for a proposal for that is on the street, and so I would suspect that industry is putting together their packages and their proposals, and they will then send that into the Air Force procurement system, and sometime in the spring or early summer, uh, the Air Force, uh, on our behalf, will, uh, will award uh, that contract to somebody. And at this point, we, we don't have any idea who that might be, and we don't know who's who's competing. Over. Just one quick follow-up on that. Um, you said that you hope that DOD is able to make up the time lost for the MI-17s and procurement. How far behind do you estimate that you are at this point? If I remember right, initially the Navy was going to make a decision in the late summer. Right. We're about uh, three or four months behind at this point, which is the 100 days of the protest. And so the protest period took the whole 100 days, so it's put us about three and a half to four months uh, behind. Thank you. And back to Spencer. Um, sir, just to make sure that, that everything's cleared up, for the uh, sustainment fund, uh, how many out years do you have for that, or is that indefinite? Can you, can you repeat that again, please? Sure. Um, when you started talking about uh, the sustainment fund uh, for sustaining Afghan security forces going out beyond uh, the rates reached by 2011, uh, you're talking about uh, $6 billion per year for an army and police of 305000 How many years does that sustainment fund continue for per year? Well, there, there's no specific sustainment fund designated. Uh, that will have to be addressed by the international community each year. Uh, what I was projecting out is an estimate of how much it would cost to maintain the Afghan army and police each year once it hits 305000 And while that seems like a lot of money, and it is a lot of money, uh, to put it in perspective, uh, the U.S. government spends about $8 billion per month maintaining 98,000 troops here in Afghanistan. Uh, the international community with its 30 or 40,000 troops is, is, is paying several billion dollars per month. And so the $6 billion per year uh, is a very good return. Uh, you get a good return on your investment for 300,000 Afghan security forces. That is what we think each year it will cost, uh, how the international community decides to help the government of Afghanistan to fund that needs to be determined in the future. To, to maybe clarify that question a little further, how many years do you think it will take before the international community does not have to pay $6 billion a year to sustain those forces? Well, you would have to then uh, calculate by uh, how fast you think the Afghan government can grow its economy. Uh, and there are all sorts of estimates based upon how much you believe uh, mineral wealth can be extracted from Afghanistan, or they can take advantage of being at the crossroads of Asia and the Middle East, and they can get revenue from uh, trucking industry or uh, 
pipelines, and frankly, I, I don't know what those estimates are, and I, I would imagine that anyone who, who says that they know is just taking a, a guess as to what that might be. Over. And uh, Dale? Yes, sir. Um, can you identify how many combat losses and equipment that you're having to replace during sustainment right now? And uh, are you also seeing any graft of equipment that's, you know, being handed over to the bad guys? Yeah, so both are interesting questions. One of the uh, challenges we have, as, as I said, is their, uh, their literacy rate is not high. And they're, they're, so their ability to report back up what's been damaged or destroyed after is challenging at best. Because what happens is that they have a culture of hoarding. And so if they have a vehicle that's destroyed, it's really not in their culture to turn it in. Because if they turn it in, they don't believe they're going to get another one to be replaced. And therefore, they won't even have the damaged vehicle. And so what they wind up doing is holding on to the damaged vehicles because sometime down the road, after, you know, after 30 years of, of being traumatized, they, they hoard. And so they hold on to their damaged vehicles, figuring that it's better to have a damaged vehicle than no vehicle. So, so we don't have, at this point, a very good measure of, of them turning stuff in so we can replace it. What we have is anecdotal evidence. And anecdotally, we know that they actually damage more of their vehicles in accidents than they do, for example, through IEDs. Uh, and those that are damaged in accidents, we generally can get them fixed through the maintenance system so they don't have to get turned in and replaced. Uh, so the number... To answer your question, is not very high at the moment, but we expect it to increase sometime in the future. And your second correct, correct uh, question was about corruption. Uh, and as you know, Af uh, corruption is very challenging here in Afghanistan. Uh, but we, we don't have a good feeling right now as to the size of the corruption and like weapons being turned over to the Taliban. You hear stories about it, but as we collect weapons off the battlefields, we're not finding a lot of matches of weapons that have been procured for the Afghan army and police winding up in Taliban hands. There have been reports of munitions but it's hard to determine sometimes whether the lot number actually belonged to the Afghan army or police or not. Uh, so we, we, we know that there's some of that perhaps going on, but we're unable to scope it or to, to show that it's happening on a large scale or a small scale at this time. Over. Okay, thank you very much. That was great. And Sharon. Yeah, I wonder if we could return to the literacy issue for a moment. Um, forget the number you said. I think you said that only about 15% uh, of the soldiers and policemen you recruit are literate. Has that number gone up or down over time? I mean, we've been doing this for a while. Um, have those numbers changed? And then can you kind of walk us through what are the implications of having, you know, unfortunately, illiterate policemen or illiterate security forces? 
Well, it's, it's interesting. You're right. The number is about 15%. Uh, but interesting enough, we have not been at this for a while on the literacy front. Uh, one would say, hey, you, you know, we've been training the Afghan army and police for nine years, and that's true. But there was never a concerted effort to tackle the literacy challenge. And the person who really deserves a lot of the credit for, for, for starting the literacy programs in the police and in the Army is Ambassador Holbrook, who recently passed away. It was one of his passions during the Afghanistan-Pakistan review last year because he saw exactly what you were saying, that the challenges the police were having in being corrupt, in not interacting with the people, in taking advantage of the public, it was his belief, correctly, as it turns out, that a large part of that was due to the fact that the police were illiterate. They couldn't read and write. And if you can't read and write, you don't know how much money you're supposed to get paid. And so if, this, if your supervisor only gives you half your paycheck, you don't know that. And if you only get half your paycheck and you can't support your family, what you wind up doing then is shaking down and setting up illegal checkpoints or doing things you shouldn't be doing. The other thing is, if, you, if you're illiterate, it's very difficult to train you. And so what you had were untrained police who weren't getting all of their salary, who were forced then to essentially survive through corruption. And so when General Caldwell came over here, Ambassador Holbrook told him, you've got to get after literacy, because if you don't get after literacy and make them so that they can read and write and understand, you, you're just going to keep going in circles trying to train the Army and police, and you're never going to bust out of this corruption cycle. You'll never bust out of the cycle where they can't keep accountability of their equipment because they don't know how to count. If you have 10 radios and you don't know what the number 10 means, how do you keep accountability of the radios? And so General Caldwell, responding then to the ambassador, set up some pilot programs with literacy, and it turns out that the Afghans, once they found out that if they joined the Army and police, that they would get literacy training, that became a very big recruiting tool. And what we find out now through the pilots was that those soldiers who become literate now understand how much money they're supposed to get paid. And so they're able to get their full paycheck and they're less tolerant of, of, of being essentially ripped off. And so where we are now is going, converting those pilot programs. By June of 2011, we're hoping to have at any one time up to 100,000 Afghan army and police in some version of literacy training. So we haven't seen on a large scale the transformative effects of the literacy training yet because we're just getting started. But by next summer, we're hoping to see whether this experiment on a large scale of uplifting the human capital and education, which we did so successfully in our Army back in the 70s, we'll see if that works here and helps get that qualitative edge on the Afghan Army and police that then make them less susceptible to corruption, 
higher quality, able to enforce the rule of law because they're able to read the law and process evidence. And so hopefully by next summer we'll see we'll see where we are with that. We're optimistic about it. Over. Um, just to clarify, did you say 100,000 in some form of literacy training? I just want to see if I wrote down that number correctly. Yes, okay. by June of 2011, we're hoping... Okay, we have him back on the line. So, uh, actually, um, we are getting close to our uh, time frame. We have time for about one more question. Uh, Spencer, did you have another question? Yeah, uh, real quick. Um, I was wondering, um, are you guys any closer to awarding a police training contract? Um, I've been told that uh, even after uh, the dispute over whether this was, in fact, an Army contract or a State Department contract to award that. Uh, the beating is still ongoing, and, and it'll be NTMA and C sticker that'll that'll ultimately make a choice. Are you guys any closer to that? Well, the way the way it works is uh, we we are transferring the contract from the Department of State to oversight of it to the Department of Defense, and so NTMA C sticker is the owner of the requirement for the contract. The actual acquisition of the contract is being done by a uh, acquisition agency back in the United States. Uh, they have done their source selection. They have had industry come in with their, all their bids and proposals, and they're in the very final stages of uh, finalizing the source selection and then announcing a winner. And we're expecting an announcement before the end of December, uh, uh, sometime in the next uh, week or two, uh, for a new police training contract uh, award, and it'll be a different contract uh, than the one the Department of State has. We, we've narrowed it and changed it to meet our mission, and so we're hoping by the end of December that will be announced. Over. Which is the agency that will award it? Excuse me? Which is the agency, which agency will award the contract? Well, the uh, agency is uh, out of Army Contracting Command. And it's uh, out of Aberdeen Proving, Proving Grounds. Thanks very much. And thank you very much, sir, and thank you to the uh, bloggers that are on the line for your questions. Um, <clears throat> sir, with that, if you have any uh, final comments, uh, you can go ahead and go with those. Yeah, uh, once again, thank you for taking the time to uh, learn more about what we do. Uh, we've, we are realistic in our assessment of what the Afghan Army and police can do. Uh, there were a lot of people who did not think that we could, that they could grow to their growth targets for this year, and they made their growth targets uh, three, three months early. And we are starting to see signs that the quality of the force is improving, both in the training base and in the recruits we're getting and out in the field. But I, I don't want to leave anybody with a false impression that what that, that we're done and everything's going extremely well. Uh, every day is a challenge. Uh, as you're generating a unit of brand-new recruits and brand-new leaders, we put them through training, and then they literally sometimes, if they're going down south, their first exercise as a military unit is a movement to contact through enemy through enemy forces to get to their home station where they're going. And so as with any armed forces or police, during a war, you've got a very inexperienced force with 
leaders who haven't been developed over time. Uh, so the leadership is new, the soldiers are new, they're getting used to their equipment, and it will take several years for this force to mature, but we're guardedly optimistic that the force is on, the, the Afghan security forces, the Army and the police are on the right track. Uh, and we're proud of what they're doing out there every day. Uh, but once again, make no mistake, it, there, there are significant challenges and hurdles ahead. Uh, but we're, we're prepared to, uh, to overcome them and help the Afghan security forces take the lead. And that's so important because what we want is the Afghans on the lead in these operations, not the U.S. or coalition forces. And every day we know that if we can put more Afghans out there, it relieves the pressure on our forces and, and makes the time that our forces can come back sooner than later. And so that's what keeps us going here, and that's why we want to get the Afghans in the lead. Uh, so thank you very much again, and that concludes my comments. Once again, thank you very much, Colonel Ferrari, and thank you to the bloggers on the line for your questions. Today's program will be available online at the bloggers link on dodlive.mil, where you'll be able to access a story based on today's call, along with source documents such as this audio file and a print transcript. Again, thank you to everybody on the line. This concludes today's event. Feel free to disconnect at this time.